Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening on today's episode? Today, we are going to be going to the space race with John Glenn, <laughs> whoop, whoop. who's a man, to be clear. And yes. this is a women's history podcast. Let's draw the breadcrumbs together. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Yeah, so I had a really fun time talking to Professor Sylvester about John Glenn and these really incredible letters that students wrote to him and that she's compiling. Yeah, and she works for the Girl Museum. She's also a professor at, uh, in Boulder, Colorado, but um, she works for the Girl Museum, which is so cool. And yeah. it, previously, she had compiled a DBQ for teachers to use with these letters. <laughs> if you don't know what a DBQ is in teacher land, or rather, <laughs> yeah, it's, more I don't. Like, it's more like AP <laughs> curriculum land, but a DBQ is a document-based question. And so you get these, you know, pri- this primary source material and you put it together. And it's very similar to the lesson plans that we have available on our website. Although a DBQ sort of traditionally is just like, here's a few sources and an overarching question. Ours, you know, like guide students through those sources. Yep. And I will have to, you know, I'm curious if she if she does that with her with her DBQ. But DBQs are such cool tools for teachers to yeah. use and it gets kids like doing history. So and this one's really fun because it's in a cool time period. John Glenn's a really interesting astronaut and so really deeply gets into kind of the different students and the things that, you know, they were really interested in talking with him about. And he was a really interesting person. I don't know if you know John Glenn. Yeah. I'm well. As previously revealed, <laughs> you are obsessed with the space race. I I was. I, I had to brush up, and I certainly am not as knowledgeable about it as um as Dr. Sylvester. But so let me give you a little a bit about John Glenn. So John Herschel Glenn Jr. He was in the Marine Corps. He was an aviator, engineer, astronaut, and this is in um he's he's been living in the lifetime in, in the U.S. in between nineteen twenty. And he becomes an astronaut in the 1950s, 60s. So if you don't know about the space race, it was kind of why he was famous. So he orbited the Earth, circling it three times in 1962. So pretty, pretty big deal. And then he also was a, I think he was a Democrat for um, Ohio, like a government. Yeah, he goes on to have an interesting political career. Yeah. Yeah. But he becomes the third American in space. And he's just this like celebrity, right? Well, and at that time, it it was the biggest thing happening. And we were were in this race to go into outer space against Russia. And so it's all about who can get there first, who can get to the moon. And so... Um, really then, interesting. It, it takes over the you know the cultural imagination. Like oh gosh, you know you think like Star Wars comes out of the same time period, and but like so much happens in our pop culture at that yeah. time too, like fashion. So a lot of the wives of the astronauts became really famous. Yeah, and there's a lot about them too if you're really interested. But you know Jackie um, Kennedy Onassis was like a, a really big icon at the time and the wives of the astronauts became almost just as famous as she was and so people were always looking to them to see what they were wearing what they were interested in there was a lot of like this is like our first you know experience with paparazzi yeah in magazines imagine like kids are just eating all of that up and men going to space like it was just such a big deal yeah so yeah it's it's been really it was really cool to read as a kid but yeah um there's also so much coming out now about the actual women who helped 
that mission too yeah. that like did mathematics and did computer science at the time and oh. it's really cool well i'm excited to hear from dr sylvester yeah That's awesome yeah i hope you enjoy i'll let her introduce herself my name is roshana sylvester and i am a an associate professor of critical media practices and digital humanities at the university of colorado in boulder and originally i'm from milwaukee wisconsin my parents were both teachers my mom was a, a Head Start teacher, actually, um, for the Milwaukee public school system for a long time. Um, so I grew up in a family um, where books and ideas and broad experiences mattered a lot. Um, you know, so that's kind of part of what interested me. And I, I also uh, was always a public school girl. You know, I, I came up through the public schools. And then, um, you know, when I got uh, into college. I went to the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee originally. You know, it was the Cold War, right? So being interested in politics meant being interested in in what was happening in the world and specifically the Soviet Union. And so I I thought I wanted to do uh, international relations or or um, maybe political science. So I started taking those classes and, you know, the professors would say things like, oh, the Soviet Union is X, the Soviet Union is Y. And I'd say, well, wait, you know, how did that, how did they get that way? And they're like, oh, that's a history question and go take some history classes. I did. I, I took a Russian history course, met a professor who changed my life. Phil Shoshko is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in the history department. And, you know, it's just, it's amazing how just that one person, you know, that one professor, that one high school teacher, you know, that one person in your life who sees you, right, sees something in you can set you on a whole new path. And, and that's really what happened for me. Uh, Professor Shoshko encouraged me to uh, go on this two-week study trip to the Soviet Union. And I did. And, you know, it was already like a big deal to get on a bus and go to O'Hare Airport, you know, and get on a big plane and fly, you know, to the Soviet Union it was just a freak out. So that trip really changed a lot for me. Um, and, you know, I came back after these two weeks, just being super interested in Russian history, you know, wanting to study Russian, wanting to, you know, learn more um, about this. As sometimes happens in life, uh, I kind of ended up taking a detour, um, took me a while to actually pursue those interests. You know, I had to leave college for a while. Um, but when I did come back and, and finish, kind of shockingly, I got into the um, master's program in Russian studies at Yale University. So I moved to New Haven. Once I was there, I decided to um, switch into the PhD program. So I ended up getting the, my PhD from Yale. Too much detail to go into, but you know, I ended up finishing my dissertation in Chicago, went back and forth to um, the, the Soviet Union. And then you know, with the collapse of communism, spent time in Ukraine um, and also Russia uh, for about three years um, in the uh, early 90s. Uh, when I finished my dissertation, I, I had a baby, you know, so that slowed me down. <laughs> when I finally finished, I uh, got a job at Cal State Fullerton out in Orange County, California, worked there for four years, then ended up moving to DePaul University in Chicago, where I taught in the history department for 18 years. My husband, who's a uh, computer scientist, was hired at CU Boulder in uh, information science. And at that point, I, I was the trailing spouse. Um, so I, I, I moved. Um, and it gave me a chance at, uh, you know, kind of a, a later stage in my career um, to switch gears and move into doing more creative work. You know, I was sort of tired of doing traditional academic scholarship. And, and part of the reason for that was 
the resistance that I was getting from a still very male dominated, traditionally minded department to the kind of work, the kind of stories that I wanted to tell. The first book that I wrote was uh, a study of the city of Odessa in Ukraine uh, before the 1917 revolution. It's, you know, the stories that I wanted to tell, I think are so compelling and so interested and I really wanted to take them to a larger audience, right? Um, so figuring out how to do that from this new position that I have here has been a really fun and interesting um, thing. And again, I was trained as a, in Russian history, but for my second project, I uh, was very interested in the early space age um, and uh, this moment in particular in uh, April 1961, when for the first time in you know the, the long history of planet Earth, somebody escaped, right? And, you know, that person was a, a, a Russian cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, who, you know, was the first human in space. And I was thinking, wow, if I was a kid, you know, I was born in 1961, so I don't remember Gagarin, but I definitely remember my dad, you know, waking me up when I was a little girl, you know, to go and sit in front of this tiny little black and white TV um, to watch, you know, the, the Gemini launches and, you know, eventually Apollo also, right? And, and so it was hugely, you know, interesting and just so exciting. Um, but, you know, I was born into a world of human space flight, you know, but for kids who witness that transition, you know, from fantasy into reality, I thought that was just really um, just very intriguing idea, right? And then I started to ask these questions like, how did it change a kid's sense of self and life possibility, you know, to know that suddenly it was possible, you know, to, to do this thing, right? So I, you know, that, that kind of drove uh, my interest in exploring the early space age. As a you know Russian historian, I came into it from the Soviet side, um, from Soviet history, and that meant a very different um, context, you know, than the American kids, um, you know, were experiencing. And you know, I found this cache through some space history pals. Um, uh, turned me on to this little cache of, of letters in one of the archives from basically fan mail um, to Yuri Gagarin and also to the first woman in space, Valentina Tereshkova, another Soviet cosmonaut who flew in 1963. And, you know, this was news to me, right? I mean, I had, um, you know, as an American, we knew about, I knew about Sally Ride, you know, that happened when I was, you know, old enough to be paying attention to that. Um, so I certainly knew about her, but, you know, the fact that the Soviets had sent up a woman 20 years before Sally Ride and that she uh, was uh, only two years after Gagarin went up. Right. So this is very early on in human spaceflight um, experience. These Soviet kids had a woman to look up to, to who went to the stars. And I started to read these letters and I was just so drawn in you know, by the ways that these young people were, in, particularly young people, were describing uh, what it meant to them, you know, to, to witness this, but also how it changed them. When I came back uh, to uh, America after um, working with those archival materials, I thought, you know, I'm going to go and check out what these American girls were thinking. Um, so I went to 
John Glenn's archive, which is held by Ohio State University. He was, of course, a longtime senator um, from the state of Ohio and deposited all of his papers there, um, including uh, literally hundreds of thousands of letters that he had received um, when he was um, a Project Mercury astronaut. And then uh, you might remember that he went back a second time on a space shuttle mission. Um, he was one of the few people who got to go to space twice. Um, so he, there were letters from that time as well. So I started reading um, and ha- happily, you know, what, what happened with these, um, with these letters was that uh, the archive couldn't handle this much paper, right? There was too much paper. And so they divided Glenn's letters into adults and children, for which I shall be forever grateful, and then by state. And then they took those stacks and they took one and threw out nine. So they basically systematically sampled, right? They took one, uh, they, they saved one of every 10 letters in each of the states um, from children and from adults. So it still meant that there were thousands and thousands of these letters, you know, from kids that I was able to work with. You know, from those, I, uh, you know, I, sec- I selected several hundred um, that I really thought were motivated more by a, a young person's own interest than buying, being compelled to write by a teacher or a parent or a Girl Scout leader or whatever, right? You know, there really seemed to be something that the the the, the young person, the girl, um, wanted to do for herself in some way, right? And each of those letters is a window, you know, into a life, into a set of experiences, you know, into a context. They're just wonderful. You know, the, these letters came from all over the country. You know, I have children writing from rural areas, from big cities, from new suburbs. I have someone writing from Levittown in Pennsylvania. You know, I have people writing in Braille, um, you know, sending letters in Braille. There was a, a letter that came um, from, uh, you know, at the time and called, you know, a handicapped teacher, uh, a teacher of a handicapped handicapped girl, you know, who was uh, developmentally disabled, who was talking about how much you, you know, was impacted by Glenn's, listening to Glenn's flight experience. You know, so there was just so many different things. And uh, so I, I was totally hooked. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me too, about when comparing and contrasting with the Soviet girls writing, was that on the Soviet side, you know, the, the the girls and young women had this sense of entitlement, you know? They're like, I live in the Soviet Union. It says right here, girls and boys are equal. There's no differences in the sexes. And this was, of course, part of, you know, official Soviet ideology. Where's my ticket? Where When do I get to go to space? Where's the cosmonaut school? You know, they were so sure of themselves, right? And of their society's ability to make this happen for them, which, you know, ultimately was misguided, but still was for them really real in the moment. So I'm hearing those voices, right? That confidence. But the girls in America, you know, the, what I what I read over and over and over again was, I'm just a girl, but I'm just a girl, but do you think NASA ever, ever, ever a little girl go to space? I know I'm just a girl, but I really love science. I'm so interested. You know, all I can think about, I've got space fever. All I can think about is going to space. You know, the differences were just incredibly striking. 
And, you know, if I can switch to, you know, one of my, one of my favorite letters that came from uh, Coleman, Michigan, this letter came to Glenn a little bit later than the others. It came in uh, on June 29, 1963 was the date of the letter. So Tereshkova had already flown in space. The first woman had already flown. So it was, you know, about a year after, a year and a couple months after Glenn's flight. She, she opened her letter. She said, Dear Lieutenant Colonel Glenn, I'm a 14-year-old girl. In most respects, I am completely different from the normal girl. Because I like astronautics and space travel so well, I start using rocket lingo in school and at home, and quite often my school pals, pals tell me in a joking way to stop telling, uh, talking science or they'll throw me out. Even though they say it kiddingly, I know they mean it. I used to be quite popular in school until I clammed up and started thinking astronautics. I have four girlfriends I mainly go around with, but when it comes to boys and clothes, I would rather talk space. So they kind of pair off and I'm left alone. So just in that one paragraph, the way that she situates herself in this context, right? 14 years old, you know, her girlfriends are interested in boys and clothes. She's not, but she's not normal. And as a consequence of that, she's feeling the sting of this social exclusion. It's a really fascinating opening. This is a handwritten letter. It goes on for five pages. She's talking about, you know, just being wrapped, watching coverage of Glenn's flight and, and Scott Carpenter's flight, you know, which was a later Mercury flight. You know, she talks about how, uh, you know, in the future, I want to work in some phase of astronautics. You know, at the present, I'm reading and studying everything of space and space travel that I can get my hands on. Uh, my goal for the present is to someday soon get down to see you and the rest of the astronauts and visit Cape Canaveral and see the new manned space um, center near Houston and NASA's headquarters. They are high goals, probably too high, but no one can realize how much this means to me, for I have no other plan or goal or even desire to do anything else or be anything else. I've got to do this. You know, so that kind of power is just stunning. As I mentioned, this is, this is by far one of my favorites. Um, but this sentiment, this idea, this, this very powerful drive to be involved, not just witness, but to be involved was up against this, you know, all of these social pressures, social convention that were telling uh, girls and young women, no, you can't. You can't STEM, what we now call STEM, is a you know male dominated occupation. You know, that's not the road for you. And you know, the the lack of encouragement that they were getting, as opposed to the strong encouragement that girls in the Soviet Union were getting, was again uh, just a, a very marked contrast and one that uh, you know I really wanted to explore um, in more depth. That's a that's a very long answer to how I got here, but I love that. that. Well, and so you're talking about a lot of sources that teachers can pull into their classroom too to talk about this time period. What's kind of the area that this really comes into play in history classrooms? And when you think about secondary education, when do you think this fits, and where where can we really start to put it in so that we can have these voices and narratives come forward? There's really two um, two things to think about here. You know, one is you know the space race cannot be uh, 
it must be contextualized within the Cold War. You know, so um, for me, I have an especial, I'm sure you heard it, you know, I'm, I'm especially interested in girls, in girlhood. You know, that the name of my, the big project that I'm working on is Dreams in Orbit. Soviet and American girls uh, are my the, the subject of this, you know, kind of situating them in the early space age means situating them in these Cold War contexts. You know, the Cold War is something that's still taught. You know, the Cold War shaping attitudes about uh, the need for young people to be involved in um, science, technology, engineering, and math education, right, um, to excel in those fields, you know, kind of takes us into, um, into that uh, kind of big um, set of historical contexts. Now, we also have to think about the STEM gender gap. Um, which is something that has been and still is very much on the minds of, of politicians, of policymakers, of educators throughout, you know, American society and the economy. And um, I think we can situate it that way, too. The, the nice thing about the Cold War is that it was really STEM education after Sputnik was something that was valorized, you know, meaning meaning that it was um, something that we recognize as being very important. It was prized, right? It was it was valued, highly valued, and prized, valorized, right? That means that there was a lot of writing about it. There was a write, a lot of writing about it in um, popular um, newspapers and magazines. So you know, you can look at things like letters that girls wrote to Seventeen magazine, which was you know a very popular magazine for um, for you know teen and pre preteen girls actually. Um, and and seventeen was a, was surprisingly progressive in terms of encouraging girls, you know, to move in the direction of of science and technology in their own lives. Um, we can look at things like you know how many uh, girls and young women were moving into STEM educational and career paths. You know, later on, we can look at. Uh, the number of of women who are majoring in in STEM fields, um, you know, we have statistics on that. You know, so that those are great um, primary sources um, to use for this. But we can also look at things like you know the Jetsons and Lost in Space and Star Trek. You know, and all this pop culture that was swirling around. We can look at things like children's toys and and games. Um, that that uh, had some relation, you know, to to space or STEM. I look at a lot of those sorts of material culture of of childhood, um, you know, kinds of um, source materials. I look at um, my weekly reader, you know, which was a, a newspaper that was handed out in in schools um, to to young people uh, across America. It had a very broad readership, and how the space race, human space flight, but also STEM in more generally was. Uh, being represented in these highly gendered ways, I, you know, I think about it as as a constellation. A girl is a star in a constellation, and you know the other stars in that constellation are you know these messages that she's getting through through mass culture, um, from teachers, from peers, um, from big ideology, from you know top level educators, policymakers, politicians. Um, you know, all of that stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a moment, the early space age, I really go from about 1957 when Sputnik went up um, to 1964, 1965. Um, Apollo kind of takes us into the later part of the 60s, where we have 
many other factors in play, including um, youth, um, you know, rebellion in a lot of different ways, counterculture movements, the women's movement, which really does change a lot, for sure. You know, we wouldn't have had Sally Ride if it wasn't for the Roman, the women's movement. But I'm really situating it here in the early space age that you can already see in these girls' letters some resistance, you know, some pushback. You know, you get those voices. And oh, I should mention another primary source, the 1950 census, which just came out last last year. When the 50 when the 1950 census, or actually yes, last year, um, when it when it when it went live, I dove right in and started to find the backstories, you know, of of these of these writers. And, you know, as you know, when uh what frequently happens with girls at least in our culture is they get married and you lose them in the record you know they if you can't find a marriage license or some sometimes through an a parent's obituary or something it'll say the married name so uh ancestry.com you know i i was i dove into that and then also newspapers.com which you know is another uh paywall unfortunately you have to you have to pay for that but um it a bunch of digitized newspapers there's another letter uh, that came from a 14-year-old writing from uh, Letitia, Kentucky, which is way up in Greenup County in very rural um, Kentucky. She opened her letter, I'm not writing this letter to you as an astronaut, but rather to you as a minister in- interested in science. We read part of your life story in our Sunday school literature, and I felt I would like to know more about you and hear more of your views on space travel. My parents say scientists and astronomers are interfering with things God hasn't intended us to know about. They say God has given us one planet to live on and we should be satisfied. How do you feel about this? They say the public has tried to make these men gods. Do you think so? Are my parents so very old-fashioned and set in their ways so much they won't accept new ideas? Or am I too ready and willing to believe most everything? I'm sure I'm not the only American teenager in doubt about these things. Please help us if you can. Tell us your views on these subjects. I would appreciate an answer. You know, so these questions of science and faith are still very much with us. You know, as as we're moving more aggressively into space exploration um, with the return of um, you know, NASA's Artemis project, which is, you know, within a couple of years from now, uh, if you know, there will be women on the moon for the first time, obviously plans um, in through private space companies like SpaceX, and et cetera, to go to go to Mars, um, Mars missions through NASA also, you know, all of these questions about God in the heavens are still with us. And it also gets us into, you know, questions that obviously are controversial in K-12 education, you know, about creationism, you know, people who are resisting, um, you know, into our own 21st century here, you know, um, notions of of scientific authority. Uh, A letter like this takes us there. Right. This and this this particular letter, it's interesting because I, I have a reply from Glenn. Um, the archives, we don't have very many replies. Um, but in this case, he did Glenn did write back. Uh, he said, Thank you for your letter, uh, asking for my opinion of science and religion. 
Actually, the more I learn in science, the more I feel we are proving God's existence. The more I see in scientific areas, the more infinite infinite and wondrous the whole universe becomes, and the more certain is the fact that there is divine guidance behind it all. I think that the more we learn about the universe, the more we glorify God who created it. Glenn was very forthcoming with his own religious and spiritual views in his interviews and so on. This is a very important you know, part of his life. And so, you know, that response um, actually was one that was, you know, it was in Life magazine stories about Glenn and so on. You know, you know, he he wanted to engage personally with young people who ask these kinds of questions. Uh, you know, I, I have a letter from a uh, a young black girl writing from Meridian, Mississippi, in November 1963. So this is the before the Freedom Summer. You know, Meridian was the locus of action in the Freedom Summer of 1964. Um, so she she wrote, you know, to say that she and her class at uh, Magnolia Junior High School, which was a segregated um, black all black school, at this point were studying outer space. She named her science teacher who was inspiring her to write this letter. You know, she asked a bunch of questions. You know, four or five of which she had a list of. I, I want to say. 11 questions and five of them were basically when do I get to go to space you know when when is a girl going to go to space and also an interesting one what were what were our male astronauts reactions when Russia's female astronaut made more made more orbits than they you know so this this is an interesting this is interesting in a lot of ways we have this question you know coming from a young black girl in well i guess she she probably would have been about 12 um, in, in this junior junior high, 13 maybe, in Meridian, all black school. She's clearly aware of the politics, you know, that's going on here, right? Um, that there is this Cold War competition. From the Soviet side of things, the segregated South was a huge propaganda tool, you know, for the Soviet Union. You could see all over the Soviet Union in, in news coverage of America, you know, the fire hoses, the, the dogs, the violence. Um, you know, this this was huge. You know, she also had a question here. Um, do you seven male astronauts think that a woman will go into space within the next two years? You know, very specific time frame. Um, so, you know, it's it's challenging. She was taking a critical position on gender and power for sure here. The science teacher that she mentioned, her science teacher was a fascinating person. You know, his father was the principal of an all-black school. His mother um, was the a teacher in that school. You know, he had very educated people. The science teacher, Don was his first name. He actually won a teaching award in the state of Mississippi, the first black uh, man to win science teaching award in the state um, for developing a curriculum specifically for junior high school, black junior high school students. When segregation ended, um, you know, through a court order in Meridian, he was hired by the best, you know, all white previously, you know, just integrating high school in Meridian. Um, he was very, uh, he was doing very well. He had a you know, letter from his principal in the first few months, you know, talking about, you know, how successful he was. They gave him, um, they, he started the integration order started on uh, January 1st. So, you know, he started mid-year and they gave him as a 
a homeroom, the the first um, black kids who were coming into that school. You know, those were his. That was his homeroom. So those kids, a, a few months later, uh, staged a sit-in to raise awareness about how they were being treated in school, which was not very well um, at this point. So he ended up getting fired by the same principal who had been raving about him because the principal accused him as, of basically being the ringleader, right? Of, of putting these kids up to it, right? So he donned suit under, you know, federal law, uh, federal discrimination, um, you know, suit against uh, the school district. It was heard by a segregationist judge who found in favor of the school um, district. Don appealed. The appeal was heard by another segregationist judge, um, at which point, you know, the, his firing stood. So he ended up leaving, uh, going to uh, Arizona, um, got a, a, his um, doctorate in edu- education, ended up working the remainder of his life on a, a Native American reservation um, in, uh, in Arizona, uh, working with that population, teaching science. Another example, you know, of the way that a letter like this can take you into civil rights, can take you into discrimination law, can take you into, um, you know, a whole set of factors that uh, were um, bring voices, you know, into uh, into the historical record that uh, had been invisible. Right. And I think this is the biggest reason um, for you know, teachers to incorporate the voices, uh, especially of, of girls, you know, they, you know, if women have been invisible in history, girls, they're just not there at all, right? The voices of girls now have no, are given no power, no grace, no stature. And I, I think this idea of, you know, when do we, when do we self begin to self-actualize, right? When do we begin to become who we are? People who are working in K-12 education, you know, you see this every day, you know, you know how real, how alive, how human those people are in front of you every day, right? And yet their own experiences in the past, or their peers, their, you know, kind of age peers from the past aren't part of the story, don't come into the picture, Right. We don't hear them. We don't have a record of them. So these letters to John Glenn are just stunning in their power to help us do that. So if there's any incorporation of the history of childhood, you know, into the, the stream of history courses, you know, that, that kids take, I think it would be a fantastic addition, but it could definitely be rolled into civil rights. It could be rolled into the Cold War. I really, I really appreciate it, um, Dr. Sylvester. I think, you know, these are certainly things that teachers can utilize and it's such an avenue to bring in voices from their students' peer group in that time period as well, which is so helpful. So I really appreciate you sharing your understanding of the space and and where we can find these resources and share them. So we certainly will link the um the resources on our website with this publication of this episode. But is there anything else that you would want to draw people to or share as far as you've mentioned so many resources through this conversation? So I'm sure people were rapidly taking notes, but anything that we missed that you really want to make sure or point direction toward? 
Yeah, you know, the, the one thing that I meant to mention earlier was that um, there's a wonderful organization uh, called the Girl Museum, and this is uh, this is an online museum that uh, you know they they say on their website, you know, that they're the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood, and it is a it's a, it's a fairly new effort. Um, they don't have a physical museum; it's all you know, kind of happening. Uh, virtually, but www.girlmuseum.org um, is where you can find this. And they, with Remedial History, are very invested in helping educators, um, you know, bring materials into the classroom. They have a, a DBQ, a, a document-based questions packet. I collaborated uh, with several others to create called American Girls STEM and the Space Race. That is, you know, a full lesson plan with a very step-by-step guide that includes excerpts from some letters um, that I was able to provide that, but also included um, some secondary reading and then, um, you know, some very important primary sources or excerpts like from the National Defense Education Act, some photos, um, some of these letters to 17 magazine that I was mentioning, and also just in general, very well thought through lessons. So, you know, kind of a one-stop shopping um, for somebody who wanted to, you know, is right now teaching the cold war. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, you know, how can I do this? Well, go to girl, girlmuseum.org um, and look for the American Girls STEM and Space Race uh, DBQ lesson plan packet and your dreams will come true. You can you can take it straight into your classroom. Thanks for listening. As a special thank you to our patrons, exclusive access to the extended episode is available on Patreon. You can become a patron at www.patreon.com slash remedial history. Come join us. See you there. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.